Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. As many of you know, I grew up living on farms. Uh, uh, not living on farms, living in farming communities, working on farms. And, uh, and so some of you may remember my story of taking a jet-propelled uh, bath in manure a few weeks ago. And uh, many of you cringed and, and gagged when I told that, especially my wife. And others of you, frankly, uh, some of you told me you really enjoyed the story. And there's a few crazy ones who actually told me, I wish you could tell that story every week. <laughs> not going to happen even though I love telling it because I love the reactions. Um, one of the things uh, that is common in all farms I worked for is their groves there were full of old junk. You could go in their groves and you could find old plow equipment, broken plows, equipment overgrown and covered by bushes and stuff. And almost every one of the groves I'd ever been in on a farm had a big bundle of old, well, this is nice and shiny, but old, rusty uh, barbed wire. And... Uh, Bob Merritt, a pastor in, in Minnesota of a great church up there, tells a story of when he bought a farm, bought a home that had woods on it. And uh, some years earlier, the previous owners had actually taken down and removed a really large barbed wire fence and left twisted, now tightly twisted, bent, rusty barbed wire in a bundle that was not this size. It was bigger than he was. And uh, weeds and brush, little trees had grown through it. So it was all entangled with all that stuff. It was an enormous tetanus nightmare. It was impossible. It was so tangled to think of even removing it all at once. It was just such a big job. He wanted to get rid of it because it was an eyesore on the edge of his property, and he also wanted to get rid of the hazards for when he had grandkids over so they wouldn't get pricked by it. But, but it was such a huge task that he does what many of us do with the really things that are overwhelming. It sat there for 15 years. Until one day... He said to himself, every time I walk out in the backyard, I'm just going to go over there and I'm break off one small piece and I'm going to take it back and I'm going to throw it in the garbage. And he did this almost daily because he was in his backyard almost daily working. And so two months, three months passed, the mountain of barbed wire didn't look any smaller. At about seven months, he says he began to notice a little bit of a small difference. It took 14 months of breaking off a piece, bit by bit, little by little, of this ball of barbed wire until it was finally gone. As we continue our Everyday Wisdom series today, and we're going to wrap it up next week, the question of the day is, what is your barbed wire discipline in your life? Is it your faith? trying to figure out your faith and understand that? Is it, is it getting out of debt? Is it saving for retirement? Maybe it's parenting your child and trying to shape their character. Is it the barriers you're facing in your career? Is it, is it walking, out of forgiveness and hoping to, walking out of forgiveness and hoping to see a relationship restored in the face of such pain and betrayal that it feels like it will never be better? What is it in your life that seems so big that you tend to think, I don't know what to do with this. It just seems too big to even overcome. Proverbs speaks to what we're going to call today a kind of wisdom of slow and steady, bit by bit, little by little living. 
It talks about it in chapter 13, and it says it this way in regard to money. It says, Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Other translations uh, translate that first line, wealth gained dishonestly or by fraud. It's kind of this complicated word that kind of means this idea of hasty, quick, undeserved, unearned wealth that that you might have gotten by maybe not even possibly being fair in how you treated others or behaved yourself in doing it. See, things earned slow and steady, little by little, bit by bit, lead to true wealth. Allow me to clarify a definition for just a second. It should, I think, you know, we probably think this is obvious, but I, th- but, I, but I think we tend to like to forget this. Wealth is not what you have and what you do. Wealth is how much you have after you pay for everything that you owe and pay it off. See, about a decade ago, I read a study on the finances of Americans who had six-figure salaries and up. And the shocking finding of this study was that an extremely large percentage of them were in debt so greatly that if their income stopped today, they would be bankrupt two weeks from now. People may live in country club neighborhoods and not truly be wealthy at all. It is just a brick sham that looks good. But it's all too often because they're so highly leveraged that it could all fall apart if something drastic happened in a matter of weeks. The wisdom of Proverbs that we're reflecting on today is actually inviting each and every one of us to be truly wealthy, financially, in business, in our accomplishments, in our relationships, in our growth as people, in our growth as leaders, and in the legacy of our lives. And that wisdom is this, true, enduring, lasting wealth is realized in the wisdom of living life slow and steady, little by little, bit by bit. Decide what is wise, what the goal you have and you want in life, and then do something daily, slow and steady. I mean, all of us want to make an impact in life. Some of us want greatness even for our lives. But 99.9% of all greatness in life is slow and steady, bit by bit, little by little living that leads to true greatness and lasting greatness especially. That's not what we're driven for. Our culture and everything around us says we want the Big Bang win. We want things fast. Now, let's step back for just a moment. Please understand something. This proverb that we're talking about today is about money, and we're going to talk about money quite a bit today. And some of you might already be thinking, well, I hate it when preachers talk about money. Ugh. Well, can I just have you... Step back from that UG for just a minute and, 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 and allow us to just have an honest discussion about an issue that is such a big issue in our lives. We work most of our week for money. We worry more about money than anything else. We, money and th- the things it buys are so often intricately tied to our sense of happiness and our sense of worth in life. The pursuit of money is a huge part of what drives everything we do in life. And a lack of money is one of the most universal fears shared by everyone. Money is at the center of the vast majority of marital conflict and divorce. And because it is such a huge part of everything we do, Proverbs actually has 11% of every single proverb is about money. The consistent message of biblical wisdom is simply this. If you are wise, you will be wealthy. Now, Let's remember, Proverbs are not absolute promises. Proverbs are 
like probabilities. It's like saying 90% chance of rain today means I'm most likely going to get wet. Things happen, though, injustice, unforeseen circumstances, accidents, medical stuff, and, and you can handle finances really wisely and not be wealthy. But in general, if you practice the wisdom of Proverbs and the, elsewhere in the Bible, God's intent is that you will be wealthier than you are right now. The power of slow and steady. Uh, you may remember the story of Ronald Reed. He was a World War II veteran that came out in the news a couple of years ago and uh, spent his entire career as a gas station attendant and J.C. Penney custodian living in Vermont. He was famous for driving his old used Toyota Yaris around and he liked to use safety pins to keep his jackets shut during the winter so they'd last longer rather than throwing them away. He was this vibrant personality in the community. Everyone loved it. He loved to cut his own wood to heat his own house all the way into his 90s because he loved the physical exercise of it. When he passed away in 2016, much to his surprise, or much to the surprise of his family and friends, he shocked the community by donating $6 million to the local library and the local hospital, and he still gave away another $2 million to his family. This lifelong gas station attendant and custodian gave away what we would normally expect to be something only the wealthiest of business owners could do. His story is such an inspiring story of slow and steady, bit by bit, just putting away $50 every week. And, and even at a modest rate, over the course of your career, you to put $50 away a week, you end up with $800,000. Or if you're like uh, Ronald Reed did, you, you use that money and you buy just a handful of the best stock, stocks in, the, in, in America and you never trade them. You just let them sit there for 40 years and you may end up with as much as $8 million, like he did. For the price of eating out just two times less with your family every month or maybe just a couple bottles of wine less a month or, or, or maybe decreasing your Starbucks drinks by just a few drinks and I'm, I'm messing with the, I'm, I'm messing with untouchable stuff here but you know just just decreasing them just a little bit you save slow and steady bit by bit little by little and it turns into 800,000 maybe even eight million dollars over the course of your lifetime recently I heard the story of a 16 year old girl who was working part-time, and she decided she was going to tithe 10% of the church, and no matter what, every week she was going to put $20 away from about the $100 she was bringing home every week in savings. And even when going through college, she did this, $20 away each, 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 each week. So by 21, she had saved $5,000. By 26, she had $10,000 in an emergency fund. You see, according to financial data, most Americans, even dual-income households, would be hard-pressed to lay their hands on $10,000 cash in an emergency. And yet this 26-year-old girl could. See, what is your barbed wire discipline? Slow and steady, bit by bit, little by little. See, barbed wire discipline is doing something small over and over again, regularly and consistently. And it isn't just money. Every successful writer I've known has talked about the fact I write at least one page a day. Every great photographer I've talked to says they take pictures almost every day. Great communicators do something simple every day to, to hone their craft. Great leaders have certain things they do daily to become better leaders. Great people of faith do something small daily. You see, it's not just slow, but it's steady. We're going to talk about three enemies of slow and steady and the good it can bring, of the good it can bring in our lives. And we're going to start with number three today. Uh, 
let's talk as we get into this again about money for ease of illustration. I've had the honor of working with a lot of people in life and, and, and over the years and who are struggling financially. Some of, the, some of the people that I have talked with truly have an income and a revenue problem. They make so little it's impossible to make ends meet. And then there are other people who make a lot of money, but they're devastated by, by medical expenses or, or other things beyond their control, and it's impossible to make ends meet. A uh, little sidebar, one of the things I love about QuestCare, we have a fantastic team that leads that ministry, and they work so hard to get people back on their feet so they can stand on their own because of the joy of the feeling that brings to all of us to be able to do that. And QuestCare team has regular conversations, not just about expenses, but about helping people advance employment and increase their revenue. And I want to encourage you to continue. Just, you know, give, give what you give to Quest and just give a couple dollars more every month to QuestCare because little by little, we all make a huge difference in people facing need. But here's the deal. For most of America... The problem is not an income or a revenue issue. The problem is spending, which gets to our enemy number three of wisdom and slow and steady. It is this. I want it now. And the flip side of that same enemy is I'm going to consume it all right now. Proverbs actually celebrates and upholds this little creature that we tend to spray for and squash. It says, ants are creatures of little strength. And yet they store up food in the summer, meaning ants are forward-looking. They, they're planners. They store up for the future. They gather. They don't just consume everything now. They look to the needs of the future, and they save. And when their car goes kaput, they have the cash saved to buy one outright instead of taking a loan. Those are pr- pretty fancy ants to drive cars, right? Proverbs 27 says it this way. Know well the condition of your flocks and give attention to your herds. The riches do not last forever. And does a crown endure to all generations? It's a, it's a rhetorical question. The obvious answer is no. Since we aren't primarily agrarian, let, let me put this proverb in a very simple way. Know what comes in and what goes out. Know well your budget and your future goals and the health of your finances in relation to that whole picture. According to the Consumer Expenditure Survey done by the government not that long ago, for every $1 the average American, spend, uh, the average American spends $1.26. They bring in $1 and they spend $1.26 when they add their student loans, their, their credit card loans, their car loans, their boat loans, their increased mortgage size, their equity lines. Our government isn't any better. A representative of government tends to represent the people, right? In 2004, our national debt was 66% of GDP. GDP is all the income generated by Americans in a given year. So today, the national debt is 106% of GDP. Every single taxpayer's share of that debt is $161,000. Did you know you have that much more debt that you're carrying in your life than what you thought you did? Know what is coming in and what is going out. Don't eat all of your food. Don't need everything right now. Don't eat your future away. We are a really pretty foolish nation in this regard. Uh, kind of funny, a couple of years ago, you may have heard this, 20, uh, in 2014, the rapper 50 Cent was facing bankruptcy. He actually still is, still in court from what I just heard. He, he said he discovered, though, that he had $7 million in Bitcoin that he had forgotten about. He had no clue what was coming in or going out, if that's all true. Wouldn't you like to wake up someday and have $7 million you didn't know you had? Now, we probably all say yes, but if we say yes, that means we're pretty foolish, right? Because we didn't know we had it. What causes us to not know 
what is coming in and going out. For some of us, it is the skill of knowing how to do an effective budget. Financial Peace University can solve that for you. That class will be starting again in the near future, so be looking for that. But I think for most of us, it's something different. And to get at this something different, let me, let me tell on myself some of the foolishness that I've had to learn from in my own life. I remember the first year of marriage, Wendy and I made $19,000 that year, and both of us were working on master's degrees. We lived a tight, strict budget. We took uh, additional work and, and got better pay as years went on, but with the blessing of God and, and help from her family uh, and expenses, we managed to get through college debt-free. And that, when I graduated with the second master's and all, all stuff was done and, and being debt-free, I was able to do my dream, which was ministry, and, and that meant taking a 50% pay cut from what I was actually making while I was working my way through school. Kind of backwards, you're supposed to graduate and make more, right? But that, that isn't the way it always is in life. The church we were working in uh, at the time exploded in growth, and over the next couple of years, I got 60% raise approximately over the next couple of years. And what happened to us in our personal budgeting is, I think, something that can easily and often happens to all of us. We go from being so tight with all the burden of whatever expenses we're facing and whatever our income matches up to that to all of a sudden making more money and having some excess that we can do stuff with. And instead of redoing our budget to incorporate that more money coming in, what happens, and then tell our money where it should go in a wise fashion, many of us just tend to just let loose. And we just start buying things when we want them. And we stop budgeting and we stop determining ahead of time where your money goes. And instead, we just look at the balances at the end of the month, the balances at the time we want to make a purchase. And all of a sudden, we discover that we aren't saving. And you don't have the money to do some of the things you really want to do. And it's not because you aren't making enough money to do those things that you need or want. It's because you don't have a plan for what goes out. Proverbs tells us wisdom means you manage your finances with skill to ensure both enough for today, enough for tomorrow, and enough for some of the dreams that you're dreaming. What's always amazing to me, I get a chance to talk to a lot of people who go through Financial Peace University and, and, and hear their experience, and, and almost universally, the ones who work the process, they walk out and they find lots of little things in their life that they can change that aren't, in the end, that really important to them when they really evaluate it. And the result is they end up being able to pay off the mountains of debt that they never thought they could get out from, and they do it far faster than they ever imagined they could. And they go on usually and tell me that they're able to begin giving like they really always wanted to give and they're enjoying being generous and, and they're able to save more. And, and here's what I think is one of the biggest kickers. Almost every one of them comes to me and says, you know what, now we actually go on nicer vacations than we used to and we don't feel guilty because they're paid for, because we save for them. So when we spend the money to enjoy it, we really enjoy it because we know it is there. Why? It's not because they're making more money. It's because they are being skilled and intentional about what they're spending on and what is truly most important to them. They find lots of little by littles and bit by bit things to change, and it makes all the difference in the world. So remember just a second, the definition of wisdom. We've said it a number of times throughout this series. Wisdom is facing reality and responding with increasing competence. So as Americans, here's a reality check. World statistics adjusted for the value of currency show that anyone in America who makes more than $32,400 a year is in the top 1% of wage earners in the world. Didn't know you were a 1%er, did you? 
So how is it that the vast majority of people in this room, probably, who are top 1% incomers and in the world, and how is it that so many of us in this room are struggling financially, facing debt, worried we're not ready for retirement, and undershooting our financial dreams in life? And yet there are people like Ronald Reed who live very happy, fulfilled lives and give away $6 million to charity and $2 million to his family at his death. It's because we fall into this enemy of wisdom. I want it now. Our wants drive us, not wisdom. And the thing it is, Dave Ramsey always says this. He says, if you live like no other person now, then later you can live like no other person. Meaning if you're wise now and you save living like no other Americans, you will have true wealth to enjoy guilt-free in a few years because you can truly afford it then. We see the same enemy in our relationships and it causes so much damage. We want our spouse or our friend or our family member to be what we want them to be now. Yet according to the highly respected Gottman Institute on Marriage, if you're married 69.9% of the issues you have when you were first married, those same 69.9% of the... 69.9, that's... 70% will be the same issues you have 50 years from now. Meaning that if you want to have a healthy and happy marriage, you need to learn to give love and grace and navigate those issues that don't change better. And the other 30.1% of the issues that you have, they'll generally change, but they'll generally grow and change slowly. But you see, we often put so much pressure into our marriages, even into our friendships or worker relationships, by wanting change now. We want you to change now. And we put all this demand and pressure into the relationship, and then that compounds the disappointment because the slow and, or no change that's going on further fuels our dissatisfaction and our anger. And we create this destructive, negative cycle in our relationships because we want it now. We want change now. See, but anything great grows slowly over time. And the invitation of slow and steady, little by little, bit by bit, is to live in the grace and the patience and love of God and to focus on just the next piece, just the next moment when we choose to navigate the frustration with grace and love. And over time, when we pick up enough pieces, the change is going to be so beautiful. It's going to go away. The issues are, and we're going to solve these problems and navigate them in ways that enrich our lives. See, that's the kind of love God has for us. Not demanding that we change immediately, just that we turn toward him and we follow him and step by step, day by day, with barbed wire discipline, letting him change us and lead us and heal us over a lifetime. Think about it. Who God wants us to be, we couldn't handle changing everything that needs to be changed in our lives all at once. It would be too much, just like the brush and tangled barbed wire mess is too hard to pull out all at once. And God's wisdom realizes that. So his love is big enough for slow and steady, bit by bit. 
Slow and steady is the kind of love that repairs and restores relationships that's been broken. Little by little, bit by bit, slow and steady, always moving toward the person, working to move past the bitterness and hurt and to see God's potential in the other, adding value just bit by bit every day to the other person, just a little bit. And if you have that kind of barbed wire discipline in, let's say, forgiving, even if you're trying to forgive today and and the person you're trying to forgive, even trying to do that is so hard it makes you want to throw up, Daily doing something over time will lead to healing for you. And if their will allows it, beautiful, powerful healing and change for them as well. See, that's how God works with us. I mean, look at, for example, King David in the Old Testament had such huge character flaws that would today have landed him in jail. He would have been kicked out of his kingship and all of his ministry leadership and just shunned. But God saw his slow, steady, little by little, bit by bit, consistency of turning toward God, seeking to take one more step of faith toward God. And as a result, David is celebrated in the Bible as an example of a faithful follower of God, not because his life was so perfect and good. He was an adulterer, a murderer. He wasn't a very good dad, and there was a whole host of other things he wasn't very good at. But because of his faithful, slow, steady, barbed-wire discipline of humbling himself toward God, that's what makes him a great example of wisdom for us in following God. The second enemy of slow and steady wisdom. It's hardship. I love Jim Collins' writing. Still to this day, <clears throat> Good to Great is one of my favorite books. And if you recall, the research from Good to Great actually proved that it, it's not typically the charismatic, big, fast change leaders that actually move something from good to great. It's those who led by a slow and steady, unrelenting, bit by bit, little by little, barbed wire disciplined kind of leaders that made things great. He wrote another book called Great by Choice, and it gives it a helpful metaphor for us. Uh, and he's talking about in this metaphor this race to the South Pole, to be the first to the South Pole. If you remember history, Roald Amundsen led a group of Norwegian explorers, and Robert Falcon Scott read a group of British explorers. Each leader had a very different philosophy about how they would get to the pole first and successfully complete the round trip. Scott's idea was that on the good days, they would travel as far and as long as they could, and often exceeding 40 or 50 miles or more. On bad days, they would just rest in their tents. Scott believed the strain to make just a little bit of miles on bad days just wasn't worth it. On the other hand, Amundsen's leadership philosophy was each and every day, we're going to shoot for a, a march of 20 miles in good weather or bad. doesn't matter. Some days he covered 20 miles really easily, and all of his men were saying, hey, we can make it 30 or 40. Let's go on. And Amundsen always said, no, 20 miles is enough. He understood the harshness of the Arctic. He understood it was important not to redline his people. He understood that exhaustion is dangerous to motivation, perseverance, and even wisdom in our lives. It's interesting to note the difference between Scott's diary and Amundsen's diary. On one day, uh, Scott writes in his diary, he says, I doubt if anyone could travel in such weather. Yet not too far away in the same weather, Amundsen's diary read, it has been an unpleasant day. Storm, drift, and frostbite. Hmm, unpleasant. But we have advanced 13 miles closer to our goal. <laughs> if you know the story, Amundsen's group actually made it to the pole first and made it back safely with the entire team. Scott's group made it to the South Pole 34 days after Amundsen's team, and they all died on the return trip. Collins, in his book, asks this question, which I think is really helpful. What is your 20-mile march? 
What is it that you wake up to every day and chip away at it, whether you feel like it or not, whether it's hard or whether it's easy? Does hardship stop you from doing things or do you just keep going? Do you have a 20-mile march that you exercise with barbed wire discipline? What are you, those steady and slow goals that you have? Maybe that 20-mile march is to know God and walk in all of his goodness. If that's, it's, if that's one of your 20-mile marches, then the Bible has 1,189 chapters in it. If you read one chapter a day, you read the Bible all the way from cover to cover every three years and two months. That's slow, but it's also steady. And that means if, you have, if your faith is important to you, you could read the Bible from cover to cover at least 25 times in your lifetime and know God and his wisdom even more, resulting in you realizing his blessing and his goodness even more. See, we long for these mountaintop, big breakthrough experiences. We measure success by all of that all too often, not, not, not over time, but by these big leveraged breakthroughs and growth. But, but how many people have you honestly known who had these massive breakthroughs and growth in their business or in their personal lives, and they've retained that? long term. See, I know hundreds of people who've had these mountaintop experiences with God on mission trips or other experiences and they come back and within a month they're no different than they were before. I know lots of people who've leveraged quick wealth through real estate and other debt-ridden ventures and, and then lost it all. Slow and steady leads to true wealth and all the benefits it's intended to bring. Since I brought up real estate investment and how many friends have failed at it, let me give you just one powerful example from that, that world. It's simplified just a bit with rounded numbers just to make it easy, and, but it's still real to life. Let's say, for example, you buy a $200,000 home just to make a simple number. You put it on a 10-year loan, and you pay it off in year 10, and then you start investing that same money you were putting towards that house in the market, making a modest return on it, and, and in year 17, you know what? You get to pay cash for a second $200,000 condo. Let's say you turn that around and you continue to make your initial investment, then you also take the rent from that new property and you invest that monthly as well along with what you were doing before and that cycle keeps going. Do you know where that leads you in life? You pay for your third house in cash in year 21. You pay for your fourth house in cash in year 24. You pay for your fifth house in cash in year 26. You pay for your sixth house in cash 18 months later. You pay for your seventh house cash 14 months after that. And by the time you've done that in just under 29 years, you have no debt, you've paid cash for six houses, and you have a rental income stream of 144000 or more coming in every year. And you probably have around 2 to $3 million in equity from the increased value of the homes. And unlike the people around you who have tried to leverage doing the same thing with debt, you have absolutely no stress if the market changes. You have no loans to pay. Such peace and freedom, true wealth, brings to us slow and steady, bit by bit, little by little, leads to true wealth. So let's talk about this in the context of marriage. What about marriage? I've known couples who've gone to marriage counseling and uh, to marriage seminars, and they've walked away saying it changed their lives. And I've known dozens of others who experienced the exact same thing, been wowed by the same information and tips, but for them it didn't lead to lasting change. See, change is not the event. It wasn't that 
marriage seminar you went to. The change, if it changed your life, came from the specific 20-mile march you walked out of that seminar or that counseling with where you said, I'm going to have a new way of acting, of loving, of talking, of listening. And the fact that you implemented that 20-mile march with barbed wire discipline, slow and steady, little by little, bit by bit, every day you did something new. Finally, the number one enemy of wealth in our lives whether financial, relational, or work, extra, works, work, or it isn't outside of us. It's something inside of it. It's discontent. It's not trusting that God has given us what we need for life and happiness and godliness. It's not trusting God's slow and steady wisdom because we don't like slow. We want it now. See, Proverbs warns us to keep our heart in the right place or it will drive our actions and our decisions in a negative way. Proverbs 27 says it this way. It says, death and destruction are never satisfied. Death sadly just keeps coming for all of us. But that word destruction, that, that's actually carrying this kind of a, this, this idea of the bloodlust for judgment. It's, it's so easy, isn't it, when we get so hurt by people to never feel like there's enough judgment, like it's never fully right but what else is never satisfied? Neither are human eyes. Avarice, never satisfied, always want more, always want nicer, always want the right fashion. We put so much stock in security and financial wealth. But the wisdom of writers, Proverbs 30 also says this. It says, two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me, and give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of God. So what's he trying to say? Because elsewhere, the, the, these same writers in Proverbs say that the intent of God is that God actually wants to reward our wisdom with wealth. So... What's the point the writer's making here? What he's saying is until we learn the wisdom of reverencing God above money, the wisdom of being content and satisfied, trusting God with where we are right now, regardless of where that is, that we won't be able to actually receive the reward of wealth without it causing problems in our life. Too much money will lead us to arrogance and self-sufficiency, denying God, putting our security in ourselves and our own money. Too little can lead us to desperate acts that dishonor God in the way we pursue wealth. So to avoid either of these positions where money becomes our God and controls our actions and to walk in the full blessing of God in our lives where we're actually truly free to truly enjoy the wealth he gives, we must learn to be content with whatever we have right now in this moment. Why? Because that says we trust God in all things. Paul actually says the exact same thing that this proverb says in Philippians 4. He says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in what. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Content. Trusting God. No matter what is going on, Paul turns to God each day and says, God, my 20-mile march is enjoying glorifying you in all I do. Whether I eat plenty or whether I go hungry, whether I'm preaching to thousands or whether I'm hanging on a plank from a shipwreck in the raging sea, whether I'm being praised and sought after by people or whether I'm beaten and thrown in a prison cell with all the dung and the rats around me, 
Today, my 20-mile march, the focus of my barbed wire discipline is to bring you glory and in some way to share your love and salvation with someone else through what I say and do. So I think when Paul says, I can do all this, I, I can imagine Paul. He's writing this to the Philippians. I can imagine him thinking back to the previous time he was in Philippi, his first time when he was there, and thinking the same way Amundsen did in his journal. And I can see Paul saying, it's been an unpleasant day. But I showed the guard who beat me how much God loves him. And God looked on that and sent an earthquake and opened the prison doors and gave me the opportunity to lead that guard and the jailer and his whole family to faith in Jesus. That story is actually found in Acts 16. Maybe for you, your bundle of barbed wire, the, the fence line of your life that seems so hopeless to deal with as a difficult marriage or a family relationship. And God is inviting you to slow and steady, little by little, each day, rain or shine, clear skies or blizzard, fights or no fights, to get up and do your 20-mile march and expect God to show up. And maybe he'll show up in a big moment because those things do happen. But most often God shows up and brings change through slow and steady, unrelenting, barbed wire discipline of acts of love, acts of forgiveness, patience, and loving service to others, even in the face of the difficulty, disappointment, and pain. Worship team, go ahead and come on up. Maybe for you, you're here and you don't know Jesus. You are just trying to figure out this whole faith thing and you don't have a source of contentment other than good circumstances and success, however you decide to measure that. God wants you to trust him with your life. And he wants to give you a wisdom and bring prosperity and wealth and peace and greater freedom from worry and stress and drivenness than you are experiencing now. And that wealth may not be living in a mansion, although let's face it, all of us as Americans live in mansions compared to the majority of the world. Instead, what God may bring as far as wealth to you may be the beautiful and satisfaction in your life, uh, the same as Ronald Reed, able to live contented enough even though he was never rich by American income standards, he did what few do. He made his life a legacy by wisely saving, living within his means, and generously donating to bless the lives of so many other people and his kids and his grandkids. So as we close today, let me ask you this question. What are the 20-mile marches to which God has invited you? Where and what is your barbed wire discipline in your life focused on? What are you doing each day to be on that march. Would you stand with me as we pray? Father, thank you that you love us so much that you have good intentions for us and that you don't, you don't come to us demanding we change all at once. You don't overwhelm us with demands that there's no way we can even figure out how to process or do that you as well come to us every day, bit by bit, little by little, with ways that you love us, ways you're trying to teach us, ways you're trying to increase our wisdom. Lord, I pray that what we talked about from your word today, the wisdom you're giving us today, that we would also learn to live that way toward ourselves, toward others, toward the situations, towards the insurmountable things that we think can never be solved in our life. Lord, would you just help us see how you're with us every day in that and the opportunities to love and to serve, to save and to give so that we can experience the true wealth of your blessing, whether that's 
richness financially or whether it's richness in the legacy we leave in the lives of others. Come, enrich our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.